0: I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep, faith keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith What's up guys, Brian Ratliff here Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the word of God. I recently came across an article online which lists 10 of the favorite holiday traditions around Christmas time. One of them is decorating the tree. I'm sure many of you enjoy doing that. The second one was baking Christmas cookies. Number 3 was writing a letter, uh, excuse me, writing a letter to Santa and also to the reindeer. All right. Number four is going to look at Christmas lights, and my there's plenty of them to see in the Roanoke Valley. Number five is building a gingerbread house. Number six is singing Christmas carols like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman, et cetera, et cetera. Number seven is exchanging gifts. The worst part about Christmas is when you give a gift to somebody and they don't give a gift to you. Oh man. Number eight is wearing an ugly sweater. Some of you might have jumped in on that bandwagon today. I don't know, Uh, but maybe you will eventually. Number nine is watching Christmas movies. And then last one, the 10th of all in this article was spending time with the people you love. Now, all of these traditions are lovely and fun and exciting at times, but these traditions in of themselves are really not the whole point of the Christmas season. And so I want to share with you that I think it is important for us to always keep the main thing, the main thing during the holiday season. And that is the greatest aspect about Christmas is making sure Jesus is front and center making sure that we are celebrating his birth. And today, as we come to Isaiah chapter 53, I want you to understand that the the birth, the scene of the shepherds coming to Bethlehem and a couple years later, the wise man coming to his home to visit him is really not the primary focus of Isaiah chapter 53. But I want you to know that the primary focus of the entirety of the gospels is not just Jesus in a manger. The primary scene that Isaiah is focusing on is the incarnation as a whole. And so there's an aspect of it gleaning into and looking into the birth. But this text that we're looking in today is actually about the oppression he received, the crucifixion he went through, and the inhumation burial he received. And so the title of my message today is simply Isaiah's Song of Christmas Part 4. And before we dive any further, I need to keep you in mind and bring you into the context. Isaiah is writing this amazing prophetic sermon by the divine inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And he's writing, looking into the future about what Jesus would go through on the cross. What He would go through in the Incarnation. What He would go through after He was buried in the cemetery and how He would rise again victoriously from the grave. And this is a song of lament that Isaiah is writing on behalf of all of Israel. You have to understand, when Jesus came the first time, Israel as a whole rejected Him as the anointed Messiah. But in this particular case, Isaiah is looking into the future, seeing what took place of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he's looking at how the Israelites are going to be singing a song of lament about how they are mourning over the fact that they rejected God's Messiah during his earthly ministry. And I say that to also say that every person who's ever accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, Jewish or Gentile, is going to join in in that song of lament in eternity when we gather together around the throne of God and we're singing about how He was wounded for our transgressions and how He was bruised for our iniquities and how the chastisement of our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we can be healed we would join in with the songs of the saints in eternity but as we draw our attention to verses 7 8 and 9 i want to talk about isaiah's song of christmas from these verses and if i could summarize everything in today's sermon in these three verses with one sentence it would be this thought christ was oppressed in life crucified for sin and death and buried In a borrowed tomb. Christ was oppressed in life, crucified for sin in death, and buried in a borrowed tomb. I want you to understand. In this particular text, in verse 7, it's all about how Christ was oppressed in the life that he lived. In verse number 8, it's all about the crucifixion that Jesus would go through so that he could pay for our sins once and for all. But then verse number 9 is the verse that we often overlook in the life and ministry of Christ because if it wasn't for his burial, we would not have the factual reality that Jesus actually died and they placed his deceased corpse in a tomb. The burial is just as important as him hanging on the cross. And Isaiah is seeing it from a future perspective. Now, whether this was a dream that Isaiah received at night, or this was a vision he received during the day, or God giving him the words and him allowing him to see it, I don't know the exact details, but what I do know is what's being penned right now took place some 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In my What a description it is of our Messiah. Christ was oppressed in life, crucified for sin and death, and buried in a borrowed tomb. That's what verses 7, 8, and 9 reveal to us. But I want to elaborate on that, and I want to continue to ask this question. What exactly is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah? We've observed from chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, all the way down to verse 6 of chapter 53, other details of the life and ministry of Christ through the eyes of Isaiah. But now I want to zoom in and focus on verse 7, 8, and 9. Would you look with, with me at verse number 7? Let's read this verse again. You just follow along as I read aloud. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The first of three thoughts I want to share with you today about God's anointed Messiah is this. From verse 7, we see the oppression of God's anointed Messiah. The oppression of God's anointed Messiah. Would you say the word oppressed with me? Oppressed. Say it again. Oppressed. One more time, please. Oppressed. This word and the original language gives the idea to tyrannize somebody. You know what a tyrant is? A tyrant is kind of a king or a ruler over a body of people, a nation. And they are seeking to write laws that do not benefit the people, the commoners in the nation. But writing laws that would benefit the one sitting on the throne. And what happens when a tyrant is ruling over a group of people it actually brings oppression to those that are living in that society. And in fact when Jesus was on this earth we see that he was oppressed by those who hated him. They begin to tyrannize him. They begin to treat him in a horrific fashion. And in this particular passage I think when we think about his oppressed uh w- life, we have to keep in mind that he was oppressed when he was falsely accused. Jesus, as we will see later on in this passage, he did no wrong. He did no violence. He had no deceit in his mouth. But those who sought to kill him accused him falsely. And there he was oppressed. He was pressed down and pushed down uh, to where he and his sins could not breathe with such oppression. But this verse reminds us that he did not open his mouth. So just as a tyrant seeks to silence those he's overseeing, the Jewish people sought to silence Jesus Christ in his life and ministry by oppressing him. But my friends, even when Jesus was silenced, we know that it was part of the providential hand of God And so the text goes on to say he was oppressed and and it says he was afflicted. Say afflicted with me. Afflicted. Say it again. Afflicted. Christ was not just oppressed when he was falsely accused. There he charged, they charged him with blasphemy even though he did not blaspheme. He didn't do it. But then it says that he was afflicted. This word afflicted gives the idea that after somebody is tyrannizing, somebody bringing oppression upon them, that they begin to afflict them to cause them to go underneath some severe pressure. And if anybody went through pressure in his life, it was Jesus. He did. He was afflicted in so many ways. But he did that for you. And me. Now, oftentimes, when a tyrant is overruling people and oppressing them and afflicting them, you often have a revolt that will take place. Somebody who will rise up and speak on behalf of those who are being treated unfairly. But the reality is, Jesus, in the midst of this horrific tyranny upon him, and amidst this horrific oppression and affliction, the Bible says that Jesus remains silent. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking what I thought. Well, during the trials that Jesus went through, he went through six of them to, to be exact. We'll get to that later. But, but he didn't speak anything. Well, actually he did share a few words here and there. When he was on the cross, he did share some things while he was saying on the cross. But the idea behind this text is not saying that Jesus didn't say anything throughout the course of his trials, but Jesus did not seek to be an eternity attorney to be his own defense when people were accusing him falsely. And so the Bible says that, that just as a sheep, just as a lamb is taking off to the butcher house to be killed and slaughtered, And just as the sheep is taking there to where the the fur can be uh, shaved off of him, the Bible says that he didn't open his mouth. When they charged him with blasphemy, he said nothing. When they accused him falsely, he did not stand to defend himself. He was fiercely afflicted. He was falsely accused. But as I think about this passage, how he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before her shears is dumb. I can't help but think about how Christ was oppressed when he was fatally annihilated. The life that Jesus lived was for one purpose. To be crushed on the cross so that he could take our punishment and nail it to himself. The idea of a slaughter is is just like you might go to a butcher shop and you see the meat there before you. Maybe you go into the back room where the freezer is and you see all the At once, we're living animals, but now they've been skinned, they've been cut in certain ways to where you see the juicy red meat hanging down in the freezer. The idea here is that Jesus, just as these sheep would go through that butchering process, Jesus was butchered for our sins. The oppression he received was fatal, fierce, and something he did not deserve. And at all, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent one who he was, incarnate, could have silenced everybody. He allowed them to speak. Verse 8 reveals to us the second aspect of this text how that Jesus, not only from verse 7, was oppressed as God's anointed Messiah, but how all of this, verse 7, is leading us up to, in verse number 8, how He would be gruesomely crucified. So secondly, what else is Christ being taught by Isaiah from this passage? He's teaching us the crucifixion of God's anointed Messiah. Now we know from verse 5, we know that from other passages in this particular whole segment of, of God's word through Isaiah, that it's being referred to often, but it is in this particular verse where we see clearly the crucifixion in the mind of Isaiah. Isaiah. Now, I don't know if Isaiah saw Jesus on the cross through this vision or whatever God gave him. I don't know. But what I do know is through through the divine inspiration of God's spirit, he's writing down this gruesome death that Jesus would die. And as we think about the crucifixion, we need to understand that that, that Isaiah is, is, is this. If all we had in prophecy was this particular chapter, it would surely be enough to summarize the life and ministry of Christ. Because in the first part of verse 8, it says he was taken from prison and from judgment. This reminds us the trials that he went through and the incarceration that he, that, he, that he experienced. So Christ actually was incarcerated before he was crucified. Now, let me just fill you in. Remember, Jesus had to go through six trials. I mean, he went to Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. Then he went to Pilate. Then he went to Herod. Then he went back to Pilate. He went through all that process, all those trials. And when he was brought before Herod, Herod literally thought that he was going to see a magic show take place. And there Jesus stood almost in silence. And Herod sent him back to Pilate. And it was there before Pilate and the Jews shouting and chanting, release to us Barabbas and to death be to Jesus. He was incarcerated. And while he was incarcerated, he was There in prison amongst those Roman soldiers where they mocked him with their words, they ripped out the hair in his beard, and they spat upon him. He was in jail. He was in a dungeon like jail. I'm not talking about the royaltiness of the the jail system that we have today in our modern society. I'm talking about a dungeon with no lights down into the ground. A dungeon full of darkness. There Jesus was. And then the text goes on to say, in fact, as I read this phrase, I thought to myself, what in the world does this mean? It says he was taken from prison and from judgment. I get that. It's speaking about the trials that he went through and the judgment that was declared upon him, how he was condemned to death. But then it says, who shall declare his generation? I thought to myself, what? What does this mean? Who shall declare his generation? This passage, this phrase in verse number 8 is reminding us that when Jesus was alive, there was nobody who was willing to stand up and declare that he was being ill-treated and there was injustice on his behalf. So in his generation, there was nobody declaring his innocence. And all for the plans and purposes of God so that this phrase could be lived out. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. So Christ was not just incarcerated before his crucifixion, but he was actually exterminated while he was being crucified. You know what an exterminator is? I don't know. Maybe you've had a bug problem at your house. Maybe ladybugs. I don't know. Maybe spiders. Um, Maybe ants. I don't know. Maybe you don't have any bugs at your house. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you should pray for the rest of us when we have these little critters. Maybe you've had those, uh, you know, should I say it, roaches get into your house. I don't know. But You often get the pest control company to come and to spray and to lay out these items so that it can exterminate and get rid of all of those bugs in your house. Well, the idea of the crucifixion from the Jews' perspective From a sinner's perspective, was to exterminate the messages and ministry of Jesus. But in that extermination process, we know that that was actually the predetermined plan of God. And Isaiah wrote about it in this text. He says he was cut off from the land of living. This is a reference to the crucifixion and just food for thought. You know, remember I've been sharing with you that, that the Jewish mind today will skip Isaiah 53 in the Jewish synagogue and their readings and in the Jewish mind right now, they would interpret this passage as, as, as a reference to Israel as a whole, as a nation. But, but my question is simply this, is here it says, for he was cut off out of the land of living. At what point in history has Israel as a nation ceased to exist? Well, They've always been around since God raised up Abraham. And so this cannot be a reference to Israel in of itself. This is actually a reference to God's anointed Messiah. And we know him as Jesus. And remember, for the first 1,100 years after the ascension of Christ... The Jewish minds and scholarship who are known as theologians in the Old Testament would have affirmed that this passage, verse 8, is a reference to the death that the Messiah would die. It's only a modern idea that it's a reference to the nation of Israel. But anyways, he was crucified. He was. But then I like the last part of verse 8. It says this. For the transgression, say transgression with me, transgression, say it again, transgression. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Isaiah's writing, obviously by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's looking into the future, but also looking at this event that took place. That's why it's it's in past tense here. He's. It's interesting. He's writing 700 years before Jesus, but writing in past tense. Isn't that crazy? Well, it's only the power of God launching him in the future and seeing what's being taken place, writing it down. And so he says, for the transgression, that is the time in which the people of Israel went astray and violated God's law. And he says, for the transgression of my people, Isaiah says, my people, that is his people, Israel. The context, the immediate context of Isaiah 53 is how the Messiah would come and die for the sins of Israel. But it doesn't only Stay there. We know that this passage is a reminder that all of those who would be grafted into the family of God is when Jesus would there and he would, he would expiate. That's a fancy word that means atonement. And you're like, well, wow, you're speaking Latin and Greek and French to me today. Well, maybe, may I say it like this? That word expiation, that word to be expiated just simply means that Jesus Christ died as us and for us. He died for us and as us on the cross. That's all what it means here in this verse. It means that 2,000 years ago, when the Messiah was hanging on the cross, He was there in our stead. He was there in our place so that we did not have to die that gruesome death and pay for our sins. Jesus expiated our sin debt on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The transgression of my people was he stricken. Literally meaning that he was smitten and beaten and slain on the cross. Christ was expiated when he was crucified. He was exterminated when he was crucified. And he was incarcerated prior to his crucifixion. All of this was part of God's plan. But what else is Isaiah teaching us? Christ, yes, he was oppressed in life. Yes, Christ was crucified for sin and death. And and hey, before we go any further, you need to understand that Jesus Christ was sinless, but he died as a sinner like you and me. He died. He was not a liar, but he died as a liar. He was not a murderer, but he died as a murderer. He was not an adulterer, but he died as an adulterer. He was not a sinner, but he died as a sinner for you and for me so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. But verse 9 It speaks of not just about his oppression in verse 7, not just about his crucifixion in verse 8, but in verse 9, it speaks about his burial or his inhumation. The word inhumation is a fancier term for burial. And so thirdly, we see from verse number 9 is the inhumation of God's anointed Messiah. Christ, yes, the Jewish people and the Romans alike flocked around him and oppressed him and afflicted him and beat him and scourged him and flogged him. Then they took him weak and frail and hung him on the cross and he breathed his final breath and they took him down from the cross. And the Bible says that he was dead. His heart stopped beating And his lungs stopped pumping air through his body. And in verse number 9, it speaks about how his grave was with the wicked and with the rich. What does this mean? Well, if you're a student of the Bible, you should easily be reminded that Jesus was, was treated as a criminal... And criminals could not have a proper burial. And so they would take the criminal's body and they would throw them into a particular area there to be decomposed. And so while he was on the cross, he was crucified between two malefactors or thieves. One on his right, one on his left. One of them believed and one of them rejected him even in the hour of death. But it says here that he died amongst the wicked and he did he died as a criminal amongst two thieves but it says that he was also in death with the rich what does that mean well this is a reference to this guy named joseph of Arimathea. he was a very wealthy man in the new testament days And there he took the body of Jesus, requested to take him and to treat the body of Jesus in a manner in which this king of kings and Lord of lords should be treated. And there Joseph went and bought a tomb just for the Messiah. And there used this borrowed tomb to place the Messiah there. Now, a lot of people overlook this burial process. A lot of people emphasize the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we overlook the burial. But be reminded that in the resurrection chapter, Chapter 15 of Corinthians, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, he died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures and he rose again according to the scriptures. So the Bible predicted that Jesus would die, he'd be buried and he would rise again. His death was not staged as those claim he might have been in that time period. He died a gruesome death with criminals and was laid to rest in a wealthy man's tomb. So when Christ died, he was buried with the wealthy. But then verse 9 goes on to speak about the reasoning why he was buried with the wealthy is because he didn't do any violence and he didn't have any deceit in his mouth, so he was worthy. He was not a criminal, even though he was being charged as a criminal, and so he was worthy of a proper burial. And so verse 9 reminds us that when Christ died, he did not respond violently. Now, it is in this passage where it speaks about because he had done no violence. Throughout the 33 years of the life of Christ, we do not see him getting into a fist fight. We do not see him picking up a sword and stabbing somebody. We don't see that. In fact, in the 33 years of Jesus' life, we see him as like a peacemaker. And he was, in a sense, if you will, He was a pacifist-like figure in his life that he lived. He didn't have any violence that he betrayed upon anybody. As they, they beat him, he would preach, turn the other cheek. At the same time, Jesus says, I come to bring a sword. But that sword was not a physical sword in that moment. In his life, he came to separate the tares among the wheat. And I don't know about you, but if I was ill-treated in that way, I most likely would raise up my fist. I probably would find some type of little artifact there in that jail cell and I would try to figure out a way. Listen, that's who we are. When somebody hits us and beats us, we respond accordingly. But not Jesus in those 33 years. He did not do that. And before we jump wholeheartedly on a pacifist bandwagon, I want you to understand this, that God has not called the church to violence. God has called the church to proclaim the gospel. We have not been called to take this world by force. And Jesus didn't do that in his life. But what we do know is when we study the Bible correctly is when Jesus returns, that's when the sword of his mouth will defeat armies. And that's a a battle we'll join in on. In the future. Christ died without responding violently. But then, check it out now. Here, it gives the idea that that with his hands, with his actions, he didn't do anything wrong. But then it says, with the words that he spoke, he didn't have any deceit, any trickery, any deception. He didn't do anything that was wrong, not just physically, but also verbally. Jesus was perfect. Thought, word, and deed. So when Christ died, he did not respond deceitfully. He was buried with the wealthy. He didn't respond violently. And he didn't use deceit in anything. He, in a sense, was an open book. And this passage reveals to us that he was the sinless son of God died for guilty sinners like you and me. Who was placed in a borrowed tomb, and there he laid. But Isaiah does not say that's the end of the story. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Remind us that after they placed him in the grave, he rose again victoriously. So the story of Christmas, my friends, by the way, is, is much more than just Jesus lying in a manger. I want you to understand, there are 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 89 chapters, okay? And you don't have to shout it out loud, but how many chapters in those 89 chapters do you think emphasize the birth of Christ? Well, Mark's gospel doesn't do it at all. John's gospel doesn't do it at all. It's only Matthew and Luke, And it's only the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke. So four chapters out of 89 chapters emphasize the very birth of Jesus Christ. That is, from a chapter's perspective, that is less than 5% of the Gospels is devoted to the birth of Christ. What you find in the book of Acts is you find no historical record of the early church celebrating to our magnitude the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ. It actually isn't until a couple hundred years afterwards when the church would begin to emphasize this in a very special way. And so I say that to say this, is that do not get caught up in this commercialization of Christmas time. The point of December 25th, it's not for us to debate about, well, was Jesus actually born on that day? Most likely not, okay? But it is a day that has been set aside for some 2,000 years that we can look back and say, Jesus came the very first time, but he didn't stay wrapped in those swaddling clothes in a manger. He lived a sinless life and he died a gruesome death and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended up to glory and he's coming back to establish his kingdom. And we've got to believe this message. Now, earlier in the message, I talked to you about 10 holiday favorite traditions. I want to, in conclusion today, I'll go through these very briefly, but I want to share with you 10 sanctifying Christmas traditions that you can adopt to draw closer to Jesus during the holidays. Number one, how about read the Christmas story in the Bible? Number two, how about you study Bible verses about the Savior's birth? Connect the dots with Micah, Isaiah, and all the other prophets with the New Testament. Number three, spend some time thanking God for giving us his son. Number four, like you're doing today, gather with God's people to worship God. That's what it's all about. Number five, listen to a sermon or a sermon series about the first advent. Number six, go Christmas caroling. And I'm speaking about singing joy to the world, about how our Savior has come. Number seven, get involved with the Christmas program, highlighting the amazing story of God's redemptive plan of salvation. Number eight, give a gift to someone in need. Number nine, share the Christmas story with someone and invite them to church. And number ten, pray for those in need. Christ was oppressed in life, crucified in death, and buried in a borrowed tune. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by by faith, I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.